Good morning. My name is Jubilee. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapters 19, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John 19, starting with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in preschool and kindergarten, you are invited to escort escort your kids to the back of the room to join kids' comments upstairs. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wore a a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews, they mocked, as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Look, here is the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it, unless it were given it to you for above, to, from above. So the one who handed me over to you has a greater sin. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to see everybody here this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. Um, yeah, like Marcus said, this is a big week for us, so we're really excited about all the events we have planned. Uh, yesterday was finally like a warm day. <laughs> I was like, oh man, Easter's going to be a disaster. It's going to be 30 degrees and 20 mile an hour winds. But yesterday was like a, a glimmer of hope, like maybe next week will be awesome. Um, it is going to be awesome, and the weather's going to be perfect. I check the weather every day. I'm like, oh man, 30% chance of rain. No rain, 40% chance of rain. So let's hope it holds up. But either way, next week, uh, we are going to have an awesome Easter celebration, and there are going to be lots of fun things to do here. So we hope to see you guys all here. Now I'd like to invite you into a moment of reflection, of pause, to invite the Lord to give us what the Lord would give us this morning, that our hearts would be receptive to what that would be. So please join me in a moment of being still before the Lord. Lord, we come to you this morning and we recognize uh, that you are a king and you reign on high and yet you also ride into a city on a donkey in humility and in poverty. Somehow you are both at the same time. Lord, help us to see you clearly this morning and to receive what you have for our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the first two Hunger Games movies dropped on Netflix recently. I don't know if you guys know this, but it happened. So I rewatched the first Hunger Games movie this week. Here's a quick summary if you're not familiar with the story. We are in an apocalyptic future, and the capital controls everything. This is the capital. They have created 12 districts under them so that they can exploit people and extract resources. It's basically slavery, all to serve the greed of the capital. Conditions are bad everywhere, but the situation in District 12, which is a coal mining district, are the worst. Starvation, sickness, poverty, depression, you name it, the people in District 12 are struggling to survive. 
And every year, the Capitol organizes what they call the Hunger Games, where a boy and a girl from each of the 12 districts is selected to compete in a televised battle royale. The last person standing wins. After her sister is chosen at random, Katniss Everdeen, our heroine, volunteers to serve for District 12. As the story develops, her mentor reminds her of something very important that he wants her to remember as she goes into the battle. He says to her, you just remember who the real enemy is. You remember who the real enemy is. In the games, the kids in the other district are her enemies, but they're not the real enemy. They're just as trapped as she is. The real enemy is the capital. It's the game makers. It's the one behind the whole system designed to keep all of the districts enslaved and exploited. It's good to remember who the real enemy is. It's important because the world can feel so overwhelming to us. I remember a week back in 2015, that I still remember to this day, when I watched two movies back to back that both devastated me. One was The Big Short, and the other film was Spotlight, and I watched them back to back on the same week. And if you've ever seen either of these films, you know that they chronicle real world events that involve not just one person making evil choices, but dozens and hundreds of people all caught up in systems of corruption. And the scale of evil was enormous. It wasn't just one bad apple or one lone wolf. It was way, way, way bigger than all of that. I'm sure you have your own lists that seem, of things that seem enormous, things that seem overwhelming. I mean, how does one person fight the capital? How do we fight an evil that seems so big? That's the question that I've been asking in the passage that Jubilee just read for us this morning. In this passage for Jesus, things have turned really, really dark at this point in the Gospels. The Last Supper was this beautiful moment where Jesus is with his followers enjoying one last meal. But after that, things unravel for Jesus in dizzying, rapid succession. Jesus is betrayed by Judas. Then Jesus is arrested by soldiers. Then he's handed over to Jewish authorities who then hand him over to Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, who then hands him over to Pilate, the Roman governor over all Judea. Handed from one authority to another, Jesus is making his way up the power pyramid. And when he finally gets to Pilate, he's at the very top. Pilate is the man. By all historical accounts, Pilate was a brutal ruler. His words thudded with the sledgehammer power of the whole Roman Empire. He could torture and kill. He could pardon and set free. He could do whatever he wanted to do. What he really didn't want to do was deal with Jesus. All of the Jewish Jesus drama was basically just beneath him, right? Not worth his time. People as powerful as Pilate simply didn't have to act with people as insignificant as Jesus. It might be a little bit like a U.S. senator being forced to meet with somebody, a guy from a city council meeting that said something offensive from Haverhill. Literally, the only reason that this conversation was taking place at all was because the Jews were so insistent that this guy from the city council meeting deserved the death penalty, and only Rome could do that. So Pilate is forced, reluctantly, to talk to this guy. So he questions Jesus in John 18, a few verses before the passage Jubilee read for us, and he asks Jesus, so they tell me you're a king. 1836, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, if my kingdom were an earthly kingdom, then my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's a yes with an asterisk, right? I am a king, 
but not in the way that you mean it, Pilate. Earthly kings have servants, and earthly kings have armies that they can order around, but I don't have any armies. I don't have any soldiers. I have students. They don't march. They learn. They don't fight. They follow me. It's a pretty amazing answer. Jesus, yes, has a kingdom, but that kingdom posed absolutely no threat to Rome. I mean, what were his followers going to do? Love people to death? Pilate wants to clarify, verse 37, so basically you're a king, right? <laughs> Let's just get to the point. Jesus responds, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and come into the world to testify to the truth. And all who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. It's another pretty amazing answer because really it's an invitation. Pilate, uh, it's an invitation. Pilate's been asking all the questions, but all of a sudden Jesus kind of turns the tables on him and asks him a question. Pilate, you're smart, right? You're a powerful dude. You love the truth, right? If you love the truth so much, surely that you can see that I am the truth. Pilate, right here, right now, open your eyes and see me. Recognize the truth. Pilate, in this moment, follow me. All right, the guy from the city council meeting was starting to get annoying, <laughs> talking about truth as if he knew something. Truth? What is truth, Pilate says. What is truth? Truth's whatever Pilate wants it to be. And the truth was that Pilate didn't see a king in front of him that day. But he also didn't see a criminal. He just saw a guy, a guy without an army, a guy without power, a guy he really didn't want to think about anymore. So Pilate did what any person in his position would do when his authority was questioned. He reminded this guy who had real power. So verse 1, he had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. And to spice things up, they put a crown on this king's head. And they tossed a purple robe around his body. Hail, king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. Perhaps Pilate was paying some attention, watching, waiting to see what would happen next, to see if the high priest was correct about this rabbi that he had heard so much about, waiting for Jesus to stand up and to do something, one of his miracles, or maybe waiting for the followers of Jesus to rise up and rescue him. But no, nothing. No miracles, no rescue. Clearly, this man was no threat. This is just a regular guy, a regular, pitiful, bleeding, torn-apart guy. Then that regular, pitiful, bleeding, torn-apart guy stopped answering Pilate's questions. Verse 9, Pilate demands, where are you from? And Jesus gave no answer. Where are you from? No answer. Finally, I think Pilate starts to get a little bit mad. Wait a second, he says, who do you think you are? To me, you're not speaking to me? Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? Don't you know that I have the power to rescue you and release you? I command armies. I make the law. I am the law. I ask you a question, and when I speak, you respond. Or do we have to go back to the whip again? In the Hollywood version of the story, this is the moment when Jesus speaks a word and a thousand angels thunder to his defense and lay waste to this creature that dared to mock God. But this isn't the Hollywood version. 
this is the real version. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus spoke. He had something to say to the most powerful person representing the most powerful nation at the very top of the pyramid of human power. Verse 11, you would have no power over me at all unless it was given to you from above. It's unreal. Pilate, on his throne or his chair or whatever place he rules from, Jesus, body torn, beaten, bleeding all over the ground, clearly Pilate has all the power in this moment. Yet Jesus says, you have no power except that which has been given to you. You have no power except that which has been given to you. You aren't in charge here, he's saying. You're not in control here. I am. And I think we remember the words that Jesus spoke in John 10. No one, not even you, Pilate, can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Whatever power existed in the world, be it the high priest, the Roman governor, Caesar himself, God was God. God was God, and no one takes God's life. God lays it down. So Jesus called no angel armies in that moment. He laid down his life. He let himself be taken and beaten and crucified. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus do that? I think it's because he knew who the real enemy was. He knew who the real enemy was. The very last thing that Pilate, or that Jesus said to Pilate was this. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. The one who handed me over to you, that one has the greater sin. So who is this one that handed Jesus over to Pilate? Scholars have a few thoughts on who this might be. Jesus might be talking about Judas here. Judas, the betrayer, did hand Jesus over to the authorities. But then Judas kind of disappears from the narrative and he doesn't play a prominent role in John's gospel at all. It's unlikely that Jesus would bring him up in this moment to Pilate. Pilate doesn't know Judas. He's inconsequential to Judas or to Pilate. He has no reason to care about Judas. Jesus might be talking about Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest who handed Jesus over to Pilate. But as John writes this whole trajectory, the narrative in this moment, everything is escalating at this point. The trend was for Jesus to confront a higher power and a higher authority and a higher power and a higher authority to go to the very top of the power pyramid. So there's actually another option in the Gospel of John. When Jesus said, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin, I think it's possible that Jesus was looking past all the people and looking to the evil behind the evil. He might be talking about the real enemy, the one behind Pilate and Caiaphas and Judas and the whole Roman Empire, the one who handed him over, the one who wanted him to suffer and die. This was the one that Jesus called the ruler and the prince of the world in John 14 the liar behind the lies, the rebel behind the rebellion, the thief who steals and who kills and destroys, who prowls like a lion looking for someone to devour. Some see this evil as a spiritual creature, a demonic entity with the name Satan, which means accuser. Some see this evil as a force, a principality of power in the world, out there corrupting everything it touches. Some see this evil as a disease that has affected each and every person, a curse that twists us and bends us away from God. 
There are many ways to view it. And I think all of these ways are helpful ways of talking about something that we don't actually fully understand. But when I see the scope and the scale of evil in the world, I don't understand it. But I see it. There is real wrong in the world. And it is big. Corporations, nations, governments, big. But it's also in my own heart. And I think it's in yours, too. It's outside of us, and it's inside of us. And we're trapped in this gravitational pull, and we cannot defeat it on our own. We are captive. A drowning person cannot save themselves. Here, the Apostle Paul's cry in Romans 7. He said, oh, what miserable people we are. Oh, what miserable people we are. Who can free us from a life dominated by sin and death? And that's the question we ask, too. We've been asking it every single week. We've offered these lament offerings. Lord, things are broken, right? People are hurting in our world. Lives are being destroyed. The environment is crumbling around us. It feels like faster and faster and faster every day. Politics are poisoning us and our spirits and our souls. Lord, our loved ones are sick. Our bodies aren't healthy. And so we mourn and we grieve and we're anxious and we're afraid. The evil is too much and it feels like we are drowning and we cannot save ourselves. Who will save us? Paul answers his question and ours. Thank God, he says. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, Pilate didn't see Jesus clearly that day. I don't even think he saw himself clearly that day. He couldn't see that like everyone else, he was also trapped. He was also powerless to break free from the gravitational pull of evil. Exhibit A, he just perpetuated evil by condemning a man that he himself knew to be innocent. And while Pilate was responsible, I think, as we all are, for the choices we make, Jesus didn't come to defeat Pilate. He'd saved all of his wrath, not for Pilate, but for the real enemy, the one hell-bent on tearing apart all creation. Jesus fought in the strangest way possible. He surrendered. He submitted himself to the forces of evil, evil represented by an evil empire, manifest in the actions of an evil man encouraged by the demands of an evil mob to die on an evil cross. And he took all of that evil onto himself. He took every single blow evil could dish out. And he won. And he won. I mean, that's what Easter is all about. He rose to life again, and he won. Let me say all of that again. There is a raging battle full of soldiers and emperors and angry mobs, full of corruption. It is a violent system that exploits the weakest and most vulnerable among us. Historically, children and women and minorities and anyone who is seen as different or undesirable. It is the force in the world that makes everything harder, that allows and fuels greed, that sows lies and betrayal. It's an enormous evil. It is big. It's big as the whole of humanity. And it's so pervasive that it infects every heart of every person who's ever lived. 
And Jesus entered into our broken and evil, overwhelming system. And he got past all the way up the pyramid of power. And in that whole process, he never hurt a single person. He didn't lash out with his fists. He didn't pick up a weapon. Not when the guards came. Not when they slapped him. Not when they mocked him. Not when they beat him. Not when they nailed him to a cross. Not when we nailed him to a cross. Because if we're honest, the evil that Jesus fought is in us too. He came into the middle of the battlefield and he didn't fight. He rescued. He rescued Peter and Mary and Lazarus and Nicodemus and every single person trapped in suffering under the dominion of evil. Yes, he even came to rescue Caiaphas and Pilate and even Caesar. Jesus loved and died and rose again to rescue us all, all who would have him, all who would receive him. And Jesus never hurt anyone. He took all of the hurt into himself, and he suffered and he bled, and somehow through a miracle, by his wounds, we are healed. And because we're healed, we don't have to fight. Remember what Jesus told Pilate, that his kingdom didn't have soldiers, his kingdom was full of healers and students and helpers. It's like the movie Hacksaw Ridge, if you've ever seen that movie. It tells the story of Desmond Doss, who served in the United States Army during World War II. For religious reasons, Doss refused to carry a weapon of any kind into the battle. So Doss wasn't a soldier in the Army. Doss was a medic. His job was to run out onto the battlefield and to rescue injured soldiers. Because he wouldn't fight in the battle and wouldn't pick up any weapons, the other soldiers actually mocked him and called him a coward. At one point in the Battle of Okinawa, which is an island in the Pacific Ocean, the Americans were driven back by a, off of a cliff, actually, by the Japanese forces. And in the retreat, wounded soldiers were left behind up on the high ground. And as night descended, Ross, from below, heard dozens no, a hundred wounded men bleeding and crying for help in the night. So that night, he went back onto the battlefield and he would find a man bloodied and battered and Doss would carry him out and down the cliff to safety. And then he went back in, back into the fire, gunshots whizzing past his head, risking his life to rescue more soldiers. And every time he brought a man out, he would pray, to the Lord, and he would pray, Lord, help me get one more. And he'd go back in, and he'd find a soldier, and he'd carry him out. Lord, help me get one more, and one more, and one more, all night long, until there was no one left to save. No one really knows how many men Doss carried out that night. He doesn't know himself. It had to be somewhere between 55 and 100. And I think that's what it looks like to follow Jesus onto the battlefield. We're not soldiers. We're medics. People aren't our enemies. The war is the enemy. And we're called to rescue people out of the war and bring them to safety. Let me say that again. We are not called to fight people. We don't add more pain or more hurt to the battlefield. We rescue people. Liberals, 
conservatives, politicians, CEOs, tyrants, bigots, racists, self-righteous people, and our next-door neighbors. We're not called to fight or destroy or defeat any of these people. We are called to carry the wounded bodies out of battle. Now, I'm not excusing behavior. I'm not trying to scapegoat responsibility. But I am saying that we don't do well when we're armed with vengeance. We do not do well when we're armed with judgment. The Lord says to leave those things to the Lord. We're called to the battlefield, yes, but we're not called to fight. We don't carry swords. We don't carry guns. We don't carry hatred. We enter the battlefield armed with love and with joy and with peace and with kindness, and with gentleness, and with self-control. And we must do everything we can to rescue people and stop fighting. We love them so that they can feel the love of Jesus, so that they might choose the one who has already chosen them. And we do so in the assurance that Jesus has done as, and is in the process of doing what we could never do, which is defeat evil, capital E, evil. And that one day the battle will end and Jesus will restore all things and make all the sad things untrue, all, make all sad things come untrue. And until that day happens, we cling to hope and we move. We move into the battlefield and we pray for the strength to pull out one more person. Lord, help me get one more. Lord, help me get one more. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you have come onto the battlefield, this torn apart world that we live in, that is full of so much overwhelming evil. And you pull out one, and you pull out one, and you pull out us. Lord, help us to have the strength and the courage as we've been healed, as we are in the process of being healed, to be your army of medics, to go back into the fray, to go back into the battle to go into the danger zone and to pull out one more and to show them your love and your grace and that there's a totally different way to live in this world. There's a totally different way to engage. Not with hatred or anger or fear or defensiveness, not to protect our territory, but to show your love. Give us the strength, Jesus, to do this. Amen.